Second Corinthians chapter four, we're going to be looking at verses one through six in a message I'm entitling the demands of ministry. Second Corinthians chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says, therefore, since we have this ministry. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ, Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul will continue to defend his ministry, but he's also going to address the demands of ministry. Now, remember what we've already seen in chapter two, chapter three. Paul has been accused of misguided motives. He's been accused of an insincere heart. And now Paul will give clues on how to handle the ministry in regards to the scriptures in verses one through seven. And then in regards to suffering in verses eight through 18. In this chapter, we will see Paul's determination in verse one, his honesty in verses two through four, his humility in verses five through seven, his suffering in verses eight through ten, his unselfishness in verses eleven through fifteen, his faith in verses sixteen through nineteen. Most of you know that the gospel is the message of hope. Gospel comes from a word that means good news. In order for you to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. The bad news is that we're sinners in need of a savior. The bad news is there's something horribly, terribly, fundamentally broken, wrong inside of us. And Jesus will come and fix that. He'll wash us and cleanse us. He'll renew us and reconcile us. The good news is that you don't have to remain a slave to sin. You don't have to remain in, in, under the duress of sin, under the slavery of sin. Under the power of sin. One day you're even going to be liberated from sin. Paul refuses to use secret or shameful methods in verses 1 and 2 or distort the word of God at the end of verse 2. He knows that Jesus is the object of worship and Jesus is the subject of the message of hope. And that's why Paul will preach Christ and not himself. Can you imagine if Paul fell asleep after writing the book of 2 Corinthians, 
And somehow he was transported into the future. A hundred years, five hundred years, a thousand years, almost two thousand years. And he wakes up in 2013. And he begins to look around the world and he goes into the Catholic Church and he goes into the Greek Orthodox Church and he goes into the liberal church. He goes into the metropolitan church. He goes into Protestant churches. He goes into evangelical churches. He even comes into our church. What would he do? How would he respond? What did Paul preach about the demands of ministry? What did Paul preach about the way that a church should be and the way that a ministry should operate? How are we to think about the state of the church in our generation? Why is there such a profound lack of biblical instruction? Why is there such an emphasis on emotional persuasion? Why is there such a breakdown in personal integrity as you have to worry whether or not the pastor is going to run away with the church secretary or steal the church money? I want you to imagine a building without blueprints. I want you to imagine a carpenter without a tape measure. I want you to imagine a cook without a recipe. You see, the Bible is our blueprint, our tape measure, our recipe book. Ministry was never intended to be a place of emotional manipulation or financial exploitation Imagine if every pastor, imagine if every leader became a reality TV show star. And you followed them from what they say in the pulpit. The the church service is over. They get into their office. They get into their car. They drive away. And you get to watch the way that they talk to their wives. The way they interact with their children. The way that they live their life. You watch them. You study them. What do you suppose you would find? Dishonesty? Hypocrisy, inconsistency. You know, I grew up in a generation, the first generation, where TV was our constant companion. I grew up in a generation where kids began eating cream of wheat and oatmeal, and then all of a sudden, cereal was transformed into sugar coated surprises always after me lucky charms they're magically delicious i grew up in a world where you would sugarcoat the cereal and then stick a prize inside of the box now we're living in a in a culture in a society where uh, thank god that there are people who want to return to healthy whole grain goodness but it's interesting to me That people want to eat healthy. They want to eat food that hasn't been genetically altered. They want to eat stuff that isn't going to kill them. But they ingest spiritual things, spiritual carcinogens that are going to kill their soul and ruin their life. We want sugar-coated Christianity with a prize in every church. But I want you to just think for a moment. 
and consider what Paul has to say about the demands of ministry. Look in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Look what the, the King James translates this. Do not lose heart with a single word faint. It says, as we have received mercy, we don't faint. The Greek word enakeo, it means to become weary. It can mean to lose heart. But here, when we think of growing weary, we, we, we think of something that we have to do over and over again, and we become physically exhausted. But here, the focus isn't on some sort of physical exhaustion, but on a spiritual weariness, a spiritual exhaustion. Because the truth is there are some things that are discouraging and depressing in ministry. But the Lord gives mercy and grace to help in time of challenge. So he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry is that? What ministry is he talking about? He's talking about the ministry from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It's a ministry that is accredited. It's a... It's a ministry that is spiritual and glorious and not legal. He's talking about a ministry of grace and mercy and love. He's talking about a gospel and a ministry that's meant to make a difference in people's lives. That's the idea. Paul writes, since we have this ministry. What is his philosophy of ministry? If you were to go to Paul and say, tell me something, tell me about your philosophy of ministry. Tell me how you're supposed to do church. Paul would say ministry should be open, authentic, Christ centered, a ministry without veils and curtains, a ministry where nothing is hidden or a ministry where there's something to prove. And that something is that human beings are sinners and that Jesus is the savior. And so when we ask and we answer the question, what does Paul think about ministry? He thinks about ministry that's an encouragement. Note how he uses the word in verse 1. Since we have this ministry as we have received mercy. What does that mean? An effective ministry accentuates love And grace and mercy, you know what mercy means. It means getting what you don't deserve. That's the very definition of mercy. Someone has said that God's ministry of mercy is to the miserable. Why should a ministry be be noted by mercy? It's because, again, we need mercy. We need God's grace. We need hope. We need encouragement. I think it's interesting that Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables, has been made into a major motion picture. Have any of you seen the movie Les Miserables or Les Miserables? One of you has. A couple of you. There's been several different makings of the movie. But Victor Hugo famously wrote, That God is behind everything. That if you had the ability to peer past the surface and you could 
peer beyond the walls, the physical universe, if, if your eyes could be lifted, if you could see how God works in the world, you would be amazed. He, he said that God is behind everything. And then Victor Hugo wrote, and everything hides God who is behind everything. In other words, the God who is behind everything often is hidden by everything. Because you look at the chair and you see a chair. You look at the wall and you see a wall. You you look at the guitar and you see a guitar. You look at the pulpit and you see a pulpit and you see your neighbor and you see your husband and you see your wife and you see your children. But you don't see just beyond the surface. So Paul has received mercy. I want you to think about this. Paul has received mercy, and so therefore he's going to extend mercy to others with an open heart and with open arms. The ministry that God intends is where both leaders and servants refuse to lose heart. They refuse to give in to sorrow and pain and depression. They won't be dragged down. In other words, are there times of sorrow? The answer is yes. Are there times of disappointment? The answer is yes. Are there times of challenges and obstacles? The answer is is yes, yes, and yes. But Paul refuses to lose heart. His ministry is going to be motivated by encouragement. It's going to be a ministry that lifts up rather than tears down. Think about what Paul is saying. No matter what discouragements, no matter what discouragements I'm facing, no matter what obstacles, no matter what criticisms, no matter what insensitivities that I'm going to deal with, I understand that even though discouragements are disappointing, our encouragements in Christ are far greater So are you more likely to focus on sin or salvation, grace and mercy and forgiveness? And so Paul won't play the coward. And so this becomes an important insight of an effective ministry and the demands of ministry. The big question, does the ministry tear down or build up? Does the ministry depress or encourage? Does the ministry give mercy or withhold mercy? So what does ministry require? Here's the idea. A right frame of mind, a right philosophy, an abundance of mercy, a consistent stability. And so Paul is also going to suggest that effective ministry also means Not just having the right frame of mind, but it's a willingness to do ministry the right way. Look at verse 2. The ministry insists on honesty, integrity, in private and in person. Look what it says in verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What does Paul mean by that? We have renounced the hidden things of shame. Two very famous Bible scholars who 
painstakingly took every single Greek word in the Greek New Testament and did an amazing evaluation of these words. Art and Gingrich write, what one conceals from a feeling of shame. That's what they say about hidden things of shame. What is that? Those things that you conceal, that you allow to remain hidden because of shame. Do you understand the difference between guilt and shame? Let me see if I can help you out. Guilt is the idea that you did something wrong. Let's say you stole something from your neighbor. And you go to your neighbor and you say, I stole something from you and it was wrong. That's guilt. Guilt is the feeling of knowing that you've done something wrong. Shame is different. Shame isn't I've done something wrong. Shame is I'm wrong. There's something wrong about me. There's something fundamentally broken about me there's something shattered there's something wicked you've all heard the nursery rhyme humpty dumpty sat on a wall humpty dumpty had a great fall all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put humpty back together again that's shame shame is that feeling of being shattered not simply because you've done something wrong but it's left a miserable scar on you so when he says hidden things of shame The New American Standard translates this, the things hidden because of shame. The NIV says, a secret and shameful ways. So when he says we have renounced the hidden things of shame, the the word hidden is the Greek word kryptos. You know that word. We get the English cognate, cryptic. Something is cryptic when it is Difficult to understand or difficult to translate or, or di- difficult to interpret. Paul speaks not of handling the word deceitfully, present participle, of the verb dulo, which comes from the noun dolos, a bait or a snare. The verb literally means to ensnare or to trap And so metaphorically to mean deceit or treachery, again, the verb can mean to adulterate or water down in the sense of taking something that would normally be strong and then mixing it with something that is less strong, like mixing water with wine or like it was in the news the other day, taking beer and pouring massive amounts of water into it and and diluting it. So Paul is talking about watering down the word of God. And so the word translated craftiness means cleverness. But usually in the language it has a neutral sense. But in the biblical sense it means to misdirect or mislead or even to deceive. And so Paul reminds the reader that ministry means in part, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing that I'm doing that I have to be ashamed of, he renounces deceit, the hidden things, the secretive things, the underhanded things. Again, here's what Paul is saying, that his ministry is open and unguarded. So what does that mean to you? Well, it should mean, is that how you are? Sneaky, secretive, shamed, 
Or do you say what you mean and mean what you say? And when people look at your life and they look at your circumstances, do they get one thing or another? So again, that's what Paul is reminding the reader, that ministry, the demands of ministry means we reject deception. We don't do sneaky, weird things. Paul is unwilling to rely on gimmicks and scams and games. He doesn't play on people's emotions. He doesn't use magic olive oil for healing ceremonies. He doesn't have miracle water from the Jordan River. He goes, now if you'll just come to my meeting, look, we have blessed apostolic miracle water. He doesn't do crazy scams. He doesn't have... Seed faith bracelets. He doesn't have miracle wallets. He doesn't use weird, stupid gimmicks. Paul won't play games with the word of God. So what does that mean? It means that he's going to rightly divide the word of truth. He's going to handle the Bible with care and commitment. What else does it mean? It means that he won't mix law and grace. You can't be saved by grace plus something else. So he refuses to change the gospel in order to satisfy himself or to make himself rich. Paul won't abandon the wisdom of God for the wisdom of men. So, Paul doesn't twist the scripture, but he gives the plain meaning of the scripture. He doesn't go into esoteric readings, but he notes that all scripture is given by God. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, can be thoroughly equipped for the work of the ministry. And so Paul doesn't use the Bible to pad his pocket. Or further his flesh. He doesn't teach the Bible. For selfish purposes. Paul commends himself to every man's conscience. What does that mean? Paul is willing to reach out and touch the conscience. In what sense? I want you to think about what he's saying. In presenting the truth. Here's what Paul is basically saying. I'm going to tell you the truth. So what does that mean as far as. A presentation to the conscience. Remember what I've already told you. Your conscience is a moral organ. It, it doesn't know what's right. It just motivates you to do what's right. And so he presents the truth. And your conscience will typically say, oh, that's right. That's true. Or that's false. So what does the Holy Spirit need to help us decide? Paul is reaching out. Touching the conscience in the sense of presenting the truth. And how does Paul present the truth? He does it two ways. He tells you the truth. And then he lives the truth. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? There's two ways to tell the truth. Using words. And using deeds. So here's what he's basically saying. When I showed up in my ministry, I told you the truth, and then I lived the truth. And that's all that the Holy Spirit needs. The Word of God to draw a sharp, clean cut in the conscience. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So truth cuts through the lies, truth cuts through the hypocrisy, And goes right to the heart. And our hearts are like an open book before God. We can't always read each other, can we? But sometimes we can. Sometimes we really do say what we mean. We really mean what we say. Chuck Swindoll has something interesting to say. He says, quote, He can see every word of wickedness, every line of lust, every page of pride, every chapter of corruption. And that's when the knife starts its incisive healing work. Hasn't that been your experience with the Bible and with the truth? You go, ooh, it hurts so bad. And then it hurts so Good, I know it sounds like an 80s pop song. Hurt so good, hurt so bad. I know it sounds like a country western song. But the truth is that's exactly what the Bible will do. It will wound you. But it will also heal you. And so Paul's methods are different from the false teachers. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, manifestation of the truth, like I said, takes two forms. What you say, what you do, and he'll do both. Paul knows that the world lies deeply divided into two huge camps. Those who know the truth and those who don't. Those who love the truth and those who don't. Those who hear the gospel and believe. And those who don't. Paul knows that everyone will not believe. Look what it says in verse 3. The ministry requires we not hide the gospel. But look what he says. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Paul says... How are we to understand? How are we to explain why some people hear the gospel and respond and other people reject it? Again, I want you to just think about your own experience. Was there ever a time when you listened to the radio or you saw a television program or you went to a church and you heard the gospel being preached? You heard the story about Jesus. You heard about how he lived the perfect life, how he died on the cross for your sins, how he rose from the dead. And you thought, that's interesting. I wonder if it's true. There's Jesus. There's this Jesus. There's this Bible. And and you may have went to a Sunday school. You may have went to a church. Who knows what you did? But someone told you. About sin and how it offends God. And you knew in your own heart that that was true. And you wondered whether or not God could forgive your sin. 
when he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, the, the word veiled is an interesting Greek word. It's different from the other word hidden. Remember, I, the other word that was used for hidden was crypto. This word veiled is calypto. How is that different? Well, calypto forms part of a word that many of you are familiar with, apocalypto. Apocalypse, you know that word. Clypto or calypto in the Greek language means to cover or to veil or to conceal. It means to cover or veil or conceal almost like what you would do with a blanket if you're covering a statue. Or imagine you're playing with a child. Many of you have done that. You've played with a child. Isn't it one of the most fun things in the whole wide world playing peekaboo with a baby? You put the blanket on the baby's head and you go, boo. And it's as if this baby is going, where did you come from? It's like magical each and every time. And that's what he's talking about. A blanket, a veil to those who are perishing. The word perishing can also be translated lost. Apolomi, apolomi, active voice. That means perishing, those who are perishing. This is the exact word that's translated in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Same word. Apollome. In what sense? Perishing doesn't always mean just simply extinction of physical existence. It doesn't just mean, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in the sense of people are going to live and they're going to die and then they're going to disappear. It's not just physical extinction that he's talking about. Apparently what he's talking about is what one Greek scholar, Opke, in, 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 the, uh, in one of the great Great Greek dictionaries, he writes, an eternal plunge into Hades, into a hopeless destiny of death. You you see, there's a reason why we call people who are perishing lost. Lost. Most of us know the experience of being lost, whether you're a child and you get separated from your parents or whether you're on a highway and you're going the wrong way. You understand mentally and emotionally what it means to be lost. But this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about people who are lost. And some people get really upset when you refer to the unbeliever as lost. But they are lost. You see, people, if you ask a person, when you die, are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? The unbeliever will almost automatically respond with, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. I hope I'm not going to hell. The unbeliever will say, I don't believe in heaven or hell. Most unbelievers will believe in heaven, but they won't believe in hell. I don't believe in hell. 
I think that that's some sort of philosophic construct that religion people made up in order to try and manipulate me to go to church and read the Bible. No. The Bible makes it abundantly clear, again, that humanity falls into two large congregations. Those who are on the narrow road, those who are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Paul has been speaking about the great care that he has taken to tell the truth and live the truth. I want you to think about this. Paul has devoted himself to tell the truth to anyone who's willing to listen to the truth. If the gospel is hidden, Paul is saying it's it's not my fault. Are people lost because we fail to tell them the gospel? Maybe. Are people lost because God somehow wants people to be lost? Let me just be blunt. Can we blame Paul for people who are lost? No, he's given the gospel. The story of Jesus. Can we blame God for lost people? Does that make sense to you? To blame God? Well, God made me this way. He made me a sinner. He made me this way. God didn't make you a sinner. God made your mom and dad, Adam and Eve, perfect people in a perfect place, in a perfect garden, with the ability to choose or choose otherwise. And they rebelled and they disobeyed. And there is something broken inside of each and every one of us because we want to disobey God. And so he... Here is the idea. Well, if it's not Paul's fault, and if it's not God's fault, whose fault is it? Look at verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. How is it possible that a person can hear the gospel? It's life giving water to one. It is poison to another. What is it about the gospel that some hear and respond? And others. It's like going in one ear and out the other. Why are so many people excited about the Bible? They're excited about the gospel. They're excited about Jesus. And others see it as a monstrous intrusion. Okay, I'll go to church. Look, if it'll make you happy, I'll go to church. And so you go to church to make your wife happy. You go to church to make your husband happy. You go to church to make your children happy. You go to church to make your conscience happy. You go, you go, and it's miserable. It's miserable. You hate it. How is that even possible? Paul says there's a supernatural component. Paul says that the God of this world, pause, who is the small g-o-d of this age? Whose mind's the god of this age? Age here means epoch. It means a time frame. But again, it means a world, if you will, that stands in opposition to the things of God. In First John it says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. In case you don't know... The small G-O-D of this age who has blinded, who do not believe, is Satan. 
He's called the serpent. He's called the God of this age. He's called the devil. Scales of darkness like a supernatural mask covers blinders. There are people who cannot see the truth. They are like people who walk around with their eyes closed. They hear, they understand that there are things out there past the darkness. But for whatever reason, when they read the Bible, they don't understand it. It's interesting, it's mysterious, it's difficult, it's all kinds of stuff. But scripture reveals that we're sinners by nature and by choice. And the word of God shatters the illusion that we can live our lives apart from God and apart from Christ. But that's the message of Satan. The message of Satan is that you can live your life apart from God and you can live your life apart from Christ. The message of the gospel is, no, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And if you will submit to that savior, guess what? He'll come into your heart. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll reconcile you. Satan's target is the mind. Look what it says. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Satan's target is your mind. Your mind is the devil's playground. This is the place where Satan speaks to you and to me. Satan's weapons are lies, they haven't changed. Has God really said this? Has God really said that? I know that you, you understand in the garden that, that God said of the day that you eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And Satan's first message to a listening world was you will not surely die. Satan's target is the mind. Satan's weapon are lies. Look what it says. The God of this age has blinded. Look what it says in In verse 3, or actually in verse 4, who do not believe. Who do not believe. Again, some people get really upset when you use the term lost, and they get really upset when you use the term unbeliever. They prefer the word seeker. Well, look, why don't you use the term seeker? Well, because I, I read that in the book of Romans that there's none that seek after God. There's no one who's really looking for God. I'm looking for God. If you were to ask me before I became a Christian, I would have said, if you said, are you looking for God? I would have said, I just read Siddhartha. Herman Hesse's book, seeking means to have a goal. Finding means to be free. I'm looking for a life apart from God. I'm looking for a life where I don't have to repent of my sin. I'm looking for a life where I don't have to take sin seriously. I'm looking for a life where I don't have to acknowledge what Jesus has done. I'm looking for a life where whether he lived or died or rose from the dead, it doesn't really matter. That's what the unbeliever does. Because Satan's target is the mind and Satan's weapons are lies. 
Look what it says. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in their heart or should shine on them. I I want you to think about this. Why has Satan blinded them? It seems crazy for me to have to say this. Satan's purpose is to make people ignorant of God's will, to make people ignorant of God's word. Does it come as a shock to you and a surprise to you that Satan doesn't want you to be saved? He doesn't want you to be healed. He doesn't want you to be cleansed. He doesn't want you to be forgiven. He wants you to be pals with him in rebellion and disobedience to God. Satan's goal is to keep people in perpetual darkness, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shine through people so that they can be saved. William MacDonald uses this illustration, which I think is great. He likens... It to our solar system where the sun is always shining. We live in a solar system where the sun is constantly shining. When is it not shining? When we place something between us and the sun. And so it is with the gospel. The gospel is always shining God is always seeking to shine in the hearts of men. But Satan puts up various barriers between unbelievers and God. It may be a cloud of pride or rebellion or self-righteousness or any number of a hundred other things, some sort of deception. And so, again, when is the sun not, not shining? You can stick your thumb between the sun and yourself. You can be on the dark side of the planet as the planet has turned itself away from the sun there might be a massive object between you and the sun there might be a small object between you and the sun there might be a cloud between you and the sun who knows what's between you and the sun but again it becomes the perfect picture of what's between you and God what keeps you in darkness what keeps you from experiencing the sunlight Satan doesn't want you to be saved. And this is why it's important. If you have an unbelieving family member, if you have an unbelieving father, mother, brother, sister, neighbor. And you go, I've told them the gospel over and 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 over. Why don't they get it? Why don't they understand? Why can't they come into a right relationship with God in Christ? One of the things that you have to do, in part, I think, is pray. Because it's a supernatural, spiritual event that's taking place. You have to pray that the God of this world will be hindered. You have to pray that the scales will drop, that the blanket will be lifted And look what it says in verse 5. The ministry demands that we preach Christ and serve others. Look look what Paul, Paul writes. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. 
Both the New King James and the King James translate this. We preach not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus, the Lord. In the Greek, there's no article before the title Lord. It probably should read, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, Lord. In what sense? In the sense that Paul talks about Jesus as Lord. In other words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is risen. Jesus is glorified. What do I mean by that? Not that he simply states that he is Lord or that I am suggesting to you that he's Lord. Is Jesus really, for realsies as we say, the Lord? That's the point. Jesus crucified, Jesus glorified, Jesus who is given all authority. One preacher noted that in verse 5, it has the worst theme in all of the Bible. And the best theme in all of the Bible. What's the worst theme? We do not preach ourselves. We do not preach ourselves. We do not preach ourselves. Why does Paul say that? I'm going to suggest to you that some of the Judaizers did exactly that. Hello, I'm the famous rabbi from Jerusalem. That I was here and there and I did this and that. I, I speak Hebrew. I, I understand the feasts and the holidays and the Sabbaths and this and that. It would seem that the Judaizers were those people who were fond of naming the ministry after themselves. And all of the stories were about themselves and they were always... The hero in every illustration. But Paul won't waste his time preaching on such an unworthy subject. When you have the most glorious subject that has ever been revealed in all of humanity. Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ Risen from the grave. Now think about what Paul is saying in verse 5. When he would introduce himself, he would introduce himself as Paul, your servant, for Jesus' sake. Your bondservants, doulos, a slave by choice. So, Paul says, I'm your servant for Jesus' sake. Now I want you to think about what Paul is really, really saying. Paul effectively hides himself behind Jesus. That is a precious bit of information that each and every one of you should be able to use. Because the truth is, if you hide yourself behind Jesus, if you put Jesus forward, Jesus, his love, his grace, his mercy, it all becomes about Jesus. For we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. And the, the word preach means caruzzo. Do you know the difference between teaching and preaching? Teaching is when you impart information. Preaching is to motivate you to believe, understand, and embrace what you're hearing. 
So what I'm teaching you when I give you cool information. And I'm preaching when I say, oh, won't you do this? In light of what the Bible says. And so look at verse 6. The, the ministry requires life and light. Look what it says. For it is the God who commands light to shine out of darkness, who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Do you understand what you're reading? In this verse, Paul is going to compare the conversion of a sinner to the entrance of light in the dawn of creation. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible, do you remember the opening sentence in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Lord said, Let there be light. You know that one. Let there be light. Now I want you to think about what Paul is saying. In the opening chapter of the opening verses of the Bible, God commands light to shine in the darkness. And then Paul likens The voice of God by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ for the person who's been born again. Think for a moment. In the creation of God, God commands the light to shine. In the new creation, God himself shines in our heart. I want you to see the difference. In Genesis 1-1, light explodes into the universe. Here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4... He likens the person who's been born again that their heart erupts like a solar flare. Imagine a deep, dark, black rock completely without energy and all of a sudden it bursts into flames. That's what Paul is saying. That's what it's like to be born again. The deep, dark, empty Wicked emptiness becomes light and life. This is why I get so confused when people come to me and they say, I don't know if I'm really born again. What? How could you not know? Can you tell the difference between a cold, dark, dead rock and a blazing sun? Because if you're lost in trespasses and sins, then that's a description of your heart, isn't it? Dark, empty, barren, lifeless. And so God shines in our hearts. The light begins to shine, revealing that we're guilty sinners. The light begins to shine and you understand that you're a sinner in need of a savior. The material creation in Genesis begins with a light. And life in Jesus Christ begins with a light. This is why even on my radio program, when I'm trying to deal with people who are wondering whether or not they're born again, I ask them, I I say, do you have a driver's license? 
This is something you know you have or you don't have. You have a license or you don't. You went down to the DMV and you took the test and you passed the test or you failed the test or you had a license and it's been revoked. It's in your purse. It's in your wallet. You have one or you don't. And you've been born again. Or you haven't. And that's the point that Paul is making. That is what he's trying to say. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here is the idea that he's trying to say. It is in the revelation of Of everything that you see in Jesus and Jesus sees in you. We see in Jesus the Savior for me, Matthew 121. The sanctifier in me, Galatians 220. The sovereign over me in John 1313. So Paul appeals. He says, look, you want to have an effective ministry? You want to understand about the demands of ministry? Then understand this. Ministry means that you have to have a right frame of mind. And you have to have a right method and you have to have a right model. And so he says, the person doesn't declare himself or herself as Lord. The minister will lift Jesus up as Lord. The true minister is a servant. The true minister gives the glory to God and then points other people to Jesus. And if he or she doesn't do that, run, run away, make a run for it. And by the way, do you want to have an effective ministry? Well, then make sure you don't make yourself Lord. Make sure you make Jesus Lord. Make sure you lift Jesus up. Make sure you point people to Jesus. Make sure that you're really a servant. And make sure that the, that the true minister will give glory to God and point people to Jesus. And, and Swindoll writes again, quote, Only God can cause light to shine out of darkness, both in the creation of the world and the creation of the believer's heart. Consequently, only He deserves credit. We may carry the lamp that shows other people who Jesus is, but the flame comes from Jesus. So it's got to make sense to you that you can't have an effective ministry unless you're really born again. That you've truly been born again. So again, let's review quickly. What are the demands of ministry? Right frame of mind. Abundance of mercy. Consistent stability. Inspired methodology, reject deceit, refuse to mishandle the scripture, reach out to the conscience, knowing that the truth is the best answer to the problem of deceit. Jesus is the answer to sin. Realize not everyone will believe, but still present the gospel. The gospel that saves. No one will ever be saved in your ministry unless you present the gospel. Sinners need a Savior. That's why I just ask a very few simple questions to people. You've heard me ask this over and over again. Do you consider yourself a sinner? It's a fairly simple question. 
Do you want forgiveness? Fairly simple question. If the answer to the first question, are you a sinner? And do you want forgiveness? If the answer to both of those questions is yes, then the next question is, would you receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? What's keeping you? What would prevent you? The answer, some people want to hold on to their sin. I want you to think about that for just a moment. They want their sin more than they want forgiveness. And this is why Paul preached Christ. He gives the glory to God. He refuses the glory for himself. You may not know this, but in the book of Acts, there was a scene in the book of Acts in Lystra where Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel and Paul prays for a person who is absolutely paralyzed and the person is miraculously healed and they begin to praise Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes and they tear their clothes and they run for their lives and they say, we're men just like you. What are you doing to us? Why would you do this to us? They both understood that it's never a good idea to take the glory for yourself. My final question to you, have you come to terms with the deceptions in your life? Remember what I said? The God of this world blinds us, puts a dark veil, a covering over us. Let me just be blunt. Are you open to the truth that you yourself proclaim? You tell other people about the Bible. You tell other people about Jesus. You tell other people about salvation. Are you walking in the truth? Or are you walking away from the truth? If you have the chance to promote others rather than yourself, do you? Are you jealous of other people's ministry? Does Jesus really rule in your life? By the way, if you can answer these questions honestly and biblically and say, Jesus is the Lord of my life and I want to point people to Jesus and I want to point people away from myself, you're well on the road to having an effective ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who would characterize their heart as a dark, empty, lifeless rock. Lord, they can't seem to remember when that explosion, that solar eruption took place inside of their heart and that hot burning fire of transformation took place in their life. Lord, for some, perhaps it's been eclipsed by wickedness and darkness and rebellion and disobedience. Lord, for the person 
who's been far from you, Lord, I pray that they would return. And for the person who's never known you, Lord, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I want to experience the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose from the dead and so he can change me. I have no belief whatsoever that I can do anything to save myself. But if Jesus is willing to save me, that he can. And I receive him as my Savior and I want to walk in obedience and submission to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.